This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the State Emergency Operations Center is tracking Hurricane Delta as it heads through the Gulf of Mexico. If you're in northwest Florida, we want you to continue to, to take a look at it. The rest of Florida looks like it's not going to be any, any type of threat. Governor Ron DeSantis visits the villages to announce the state will be distributing more than 400,000 new rapid COVID test kits per week for the foreseeable future. Nursing homes and adult living centers are first in line. That could be used to continue with the screening of the staff, uh, which if you do regularly, you may be able to pick up an infection and prevent it from spreading. But also now that we have visitation back. The state health department confirmed 2,251 new cases of COVID-19 Tuesday and 59 more fatalities. The state's voter registration website crashed Monday night with just seven hours left to sign up. You know, you can have the best site in the world. Sometimes there's hiccups on it. If 500,000 people descend at the same time, I mean, it creates a bottleneck. So the governor extended that deadline for another seven hours on Tuesday to make up for the lost time. The extension expired at midnight. The head of the Drug Enforcement Administration visits Tallahassee to announce they've busted a drug ring that was flooding North Florida with Mexican meth. Franklin County Sheriff says it's nothing like Breaking Bad. A lot of people just don't realize that they're, they're still thinking that a lot of this stuff is being made in the backyards, and it's not. It's an organized uh, conspiracy to bring this stuff into our country and to, uh, you know, kill a lot of our young people. Today on Sunrise In-Depth, we take a deep dive on the Public Service Commission's decision to deny a request for a 90-day moratorium on utility disconnections during the pandemic. Where's the grace and compassion for those who are relying on their electricity so that their children can continue with remote learning for school? Or the elderly who live alone in their home and need their utilities to function independently? We'll also check out your daily calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man who lost his job as a principal after telling a parent he gave equal time to Holocaust deniers because he doesn't know for sure that it actually happened. Guess who might be getting his job back? And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, October 7th. It was on this day in 2001 that a U.S.-led coalition began attacks on Taliban-controlled Afghanistan with an intense bombing campaign by U.S. and British forces. This is also National Chocolate-Covered Pretzel Day. But first the weather of all things. You see Hurricane Delta is taking aim at the Gulf Coast and Governor Ron DeSantis is warning residents at the western end of the panhandle there could be trouble. We are monitoring uh, this hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, if you're in northwest Florida, we want you to continue to, to take a look at it. The rest of Florida looks like it's not going to be any, any type of threat. Uh, it's been moving further west, and so if that track holds, then you'd probably see modest impacts in places like Pensacola. But as we saw just a few weeks ago with Sally, uh, there was wobbles uh, to the east. And so just, just keep, keep, keep an eye on it. Uh, listen to your folks on the local level and, uh, and heed instructions. But it's not something right now. Uh, we think it's going to be a really significant hurricane, but it looks like it's even tracking west of New Orleans. Uh, but we'll see. I think in the next uh, next 24 hours will be important to see whether that track uh, solidifies or not. The panhandle was soaked by Hurricane Sally about three weeks ago, so even a glancing blow by Delta would mean more flooding for northwest Florida. Floridians who waited until the last minute to use the state's online voter registration portal were SOL. The system crashed about seven hours before the midnight deadline. So Governor DeSantis ordered election and motor vehicle offices to remain open late on Tuesday to accept new registrations in order to make up for the lost time. 
You know, it was about a seven hour, started to see problems around five o'clock. Obviously the deadline was midnight, so this is a similar thing. And also just, we really think it's important that, uh, that there also be live people that can help and that it's not just internet or, or nothing. Because I mean, you know, you can have the best site in the world. Sometimes there's hiccups on it. If 500,000 people descend at the same time, I mean, it creates a bottleneck and that's what we see. So there were people who would go, it couldn't get through, and then they would try again, and they would get through, uh, but it obviously wasn't smooth because you had so much traffic. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement is also investigating to find out if the failure of the registration web portal was the result of a cyber attack of some sort. The governor travels to the villages in central Florida to promote a new rapid test for COVID-19. He says these 15-minute test kits should make it a lot safer for residents of nursing homes now that visitors are being allowed. The federal government has actually sent the Buy Next Now test directly to about 800 nursing homes throughout the state of Florida. We, all, we have over 4,000 total long-term care facilities, and so we are sending these tests to the remaining roughly 3,200 long-term care facilities. And of course, that could be used to continue with the screening of the staff, uh, which if you do regularly, you may be able to pick up an infection and prevent it from spreading. But also now that we have visitation back, we have not required tests in order to have visitation because our view is you can mitigate and you have the PPE and to say someone gets a test and then they get their results back 48 hours later, well, that, that may be accurate from when they took the test, but we don't know what's happened in the 48 hours. But even though it's not required, now that you have a 15-minute test, uh, this can also help visitation in our long-term care facilities. And so they'll have the ability to do that as they see fit. And again, using this new technology in a way that is protecting our most vulnerable and saving lives is really the key. But the governor acknowledges these tests are not foolproof and are no guarantee of safety. The White House uses rapid testing on every person who gets near the president. That didn't stop Donald Trump from contracting the disease. You just have to understand none of these are foolproof. I think people have been pointing out at the White House, which is a different test than this, how everyone gets tested every day. Anyone that's going to be around the president is tested. I've been tested I don't know how many times. Every time I'm around them, they make me test. And it kind of gets annoying, but I mean, they've really been very diligent on it. And yet you still had... Uh, you still had virus uh, get in. So none of this is 100%. This doesn't displace doing some of the basic mitigation. This doesn't mean you shouldn't be worrying about your sanitation and washing your hands. It doesn't mean that uh, people don't need to stay home. It doesn't, if they're sick, it doesn't mean any of that. But I do think it's an added tool and, and used properly, I think will be, uh, will be very beneficial for folks. The governor says the best thing about these tests is that they don't cost the state a dime. The feds are paying. Some of the other tests that Florida has used cost as much as $100 each, and that adds up when you're testing tens of thousands of people every day. Speaking of COVID, Florida's Department of Health Tuesday confirmed 2,251 additional cases of the disease and 59 new fatalities. We've now had 720,000 infections and almost 15,000 fatalities. The actual number is 14,945. COVID was on the agenda at the Public Service Commission Tuesday. We'll take a deep dive next on Sunrise. But first, a word from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. Predict It is like the stock market for all things politics. Instead of trading stock in companies, you're investing money into your opinions on everything from election results to how many times President Trump will tweet this week. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Our podcast listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predictit.org slash promo slash F-L-A-P-O-L. Try it today. 
Welcome back to Sunrise. Ever since the start of the pandemic, a lot of Floridians have had trouble paying their bills, including the price of power. The big investor-owned utilities have come up with all sorts of ways to help customers deal with the problem, but Shakitha Hinton with the Florida Housing Justice Alliance says it's really not enough, so she was one of the parties asking the Public Service Commission to impose a 90-day moratorium on utility disconnections. Black, brown, immigrant, and working-class communities have been disproportionately impacted during this national crisis affecting residents where language barriers have prevented them from getting optimum assistance. As we've witnessed within the past week, housing evictions and utility disconnections have begun in these very communities, leaving them to fight for the safety of their children and not having their personal belongings being tossed in the streets. On behalf of the Florida Housing Justice Alliance, we urge you to stop and consider the safety of the members who have patronized these major corporations for years within a timely manner. Where's, where's the grace and compassion for those who are relying on their electricity so that their children can continue with remote learning for school or the elderly who live alone in their home and need their utilities to function independently or perhaps your relative who was recently laid off from Disney. Floridians want to work. These bills will still be due. Cutting folks' power will not lead to payment of money that simply does not exist. Of course, the power companies don't like this one bit. Matt Bernier with Duke Energy says they have all sorts of ways to help customers pay their bills, but most of the delinquent ones will not reach out to them until they receive a formal notice that the power is about to be shut off. We do not want to disconnect any of our customers. Rather, we want to work with our customers to establish agreeable payment plans or to put our customers in contact with resources that can provide assistance with paying utility bills. However, in order to provide that help, we need customers to reach out to us before they get too far behind or before assistance agencies deplete their resources. What we have found, and I think this is consistent with our peers, is that the five-day notice prior to a disconnection is usually the impetus for customers to reach out to us to start these discussions. Our concern is that the emergency rule, if enacted, would remove that touch point and have the unintended consequences of allowing customers to run up a larger outstanding balance, while also possibly missing out on the opportunity to access assistance funds, which we know are a finite resources, and there is no guarantee that those funds will be replenished. We're concerned that, notwithstanding the desire to help customers by eliminating the threat of disconnection during this trying period, the proposal would have the opposite effect simply shifting that threat forward in time with an even larger outstanding balance. Zach Cosner with the League of Conservation Voters admits the power companies are trying to help, but he says they should use more carrots and fewer sticks. We should not be relying on punitive measures right now when Floridians are already suffering and when these punitive measures could lead to further exacerbation of this massive public health crisis. The programs utilities are offering currently aren't enough. They do not meet the needs of Floridians. Uh, they fall short of guidelines that are recommended by the National Consumer Law Centers and other experts on this, uh, on this subject. And as the Office of Public Counsel noted on July 29th in a hearing, no industry has been so perfectly insulated from the impacts of this pandemic crisis as Florida's utilities. Customers in the state of Florida do not have the option to switch providers if they don't like the way that their utilities have managed or mismanaged this crisis have uh, focused on uh, punitive measures as a response to uh, the real suffering that all of us are going through uh, as a result of COVID-19, they're a captive customer base. And it's up to the Public Service Commission to ensure that these utilities serve the welfare of the people. 
In the end, the PSC refused to impose a moratorium on cutoffs, but Commissioner Donald Pullman says there are other options. We are not saying that disconnections are an appropriate thing to do. We have heard very clearly from our utilities that they are uh, clear on intent and on their willingness to work with their customers. We understand fully that uh, many of these customers are in very difficult positions, but I believe sincerely that there are mechanisms in place and the staff recommendation and all of the analysis that is in the document uh, reflect the careful consideration. Uh, and, and we are, as I mentioned earlier, we have certain authorities and uh, we are talking about a rule change. We are not talking about a change in a paradigm. And uh, the rule language uh, read carefully puts an additional burden on the customer. It doesn't relieve the customer of, of uh, the need to communicate with the utility. The utility is already uh, willing to do that. And I, I think we're being fair and reasonable by saying the change in the rule is not helpful. An attorney for the group that requested the moratorium says the PSC's decision was wrong and heartless. The acting head of the Drug Enforcement Administration says they've broken up a methamphetamine distribution ring that was shipping drugs from Mexico into the U.S., including northwest Florida. Franklin County Sheriff Tony Smith says these are not your stereotypical meth labs that can be set up in sheds or recreational vehicles like you see on Breaking Bad. Those drugs came in from Mexico and made it to Franklin County, Bay County, Gulf County, and a lot of people just don't realize that they're, they're still thinking that a lot of this stuff is being made in the backyards and it's not. It's an organized uh, conspiracy to bring this stuff into our country and to, um, you know, kill a lot of our young people. So how did Mexican meth end up in the Florida panhandle? Timothy Shea at the DEA describes it this way. In 2019 alone, Mexican cartels shipped hundreds of thousands of pounds of methamphetamines in tractor trailers and personal vehicles across the southwest border and onto the highways of this country, and then headed straight for the cities and towns across America. One of these areas, unfortunately, was North Florida. Franklin County, in particular, had been identified in the last few years, as the sheriff mentioned, as an area that was experiencing a serious meth problem. So DEA partnered with Franklin County Sheriff's Office and quickly identified several mid-level methamphetamine distributors operating nearby. That joint investigation discovered a drug trafficker in Panama City, Florida, who was then charged in federal court. Sure enough, he was getting his drug supply from drug traffickers or drug trafficking organization in Atlanta with direct ties to the Mexican cartels. The Atlanta organization, 14 different defendants, comprised of dealers, couriers, and money launderers getting methamphetamines from Mexico and transporting 20 to 25 kilos of meth a week to North Florida. But not anymore. The good news is that not only have the mid-level distributors in Franklin County been arrested, but with the help of the Bay County Sheriff's Office, so is the trafficker in Panama City. And the entire drug tra Atlanta drug trafficking organization has been taken out as well as part of our Operation Crystal Shield. Over the past six months, DEA has led more than 750 
very successful investigation in key cities across the United States as part of Operation Crystal Shield. And I'm glad to say that Atlanta was one of them. Operation Crystal Shield targeted the transportation hubs used by Mexican cartels to flood our communities with fentanyl, methamphetamines, and other dangerous drugs. But we're not stopping there. Ultimately, our strategy is to attack the drug traffickers at the source, and the source is Mexico. Virtually all of the methamphetamine and much of the fentanyl in this country comes from Mexico. These drugs are manufactured on an industrial scale in Mexico using precursor chemicals from China, and then smuggled across the border where they're distributed in every state in the country. The U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Florida says they're concentrating on meth because of its connection to gun violence. He says there is something insidious and unique about meth that inspires violence and destroys families. A personal note here, you can't see it, but Sunrise is dressed in black today to honor the passage of guitar legend Eddie Van Halen. And to understand why he was such an icon to people my age, you have to remember the late 70s and early 80s. The music revolution of the 60s was over. The progressive rock supergroups of the 70s had run out of steam. All we really had back then was punk rock and disco. It was not a happy time. Then came Van Halen, and suddenly we could listen to the radio again without feeling ill. There's an entire generation of Americans who came of age, so to speak, listening to Eddie Van Halen. And we spent years arguing with our friends about which vocalist was better, David Lee Roth or Sammy Hager. But it was all good, as long as they were singing with Eddie Van Halen. Time now for your calendar of events. The Florida Supreme Court hears arguments in four cases today, including a dispute about whether the state has properly carried out the 2016 constitutional amendment legalizing medical marijuana. The court meets online at 9. The Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission starts a two-day online meeting. They are expected to finalize an order suspending wild oyster harvesting in Apalachicola Bay. That meeting starts at 9. Also at 9, the Florida Commission on Offender Review meets by conference call. At 9.30, the State Reemployment Assistance Appeals Commission meets. Republican Byron Donalds and Democrat Cindy Bonnier, who are running for an open seat in Congressional District 19, are speaking to the Tiger Bay Club of Southwest Florida at noon. At 1, State Representative Tyler Sarra holds an event at Merritt Island to discuss the upcoming flu season, the importance of vaccinations, and a new law expanding the authority of pharmacists to provide health care services. Members of the Florida Black Caucus hold an online town meeting at 7.30 to discuss constitutional amendments on the ballot. And Vice President Mike Pence and Democratic Vice Presidential Candidate Kamala Harris are scheduled to debate at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City beginning at 9. Finally today, a Florida man who lost his job as a high school principal after telling a parent he could not say the Holocaust was real may be rehired today, with back pay no less. The Palm Beach County School Board voted to fire Spanish River High School Principal William Latson last year for ethical misconduct and failure to carry out his job responsibilities. But an administrative judge ruled against the board, so the superintendent is recommending that he be rehired and given $152,000 in back pay. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.